The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. That is booth 3975. And go say hello to their friendly staff and check out all their modules. You can find out more about Mission's high-power modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Here's what's on the docket this week. California extends cap and trade. A Google X spinoff looks to reinvent geothermal heating and cooling. And top solar city executives depart Tesla. With me to talk about those stories and more are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my regular co-hosts, both in Washington, D.C. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Howdy. Hi, I just got back. I think Jigger and I both just got back last night from California. Yes. You were at a NARUC meeting, right? I can't keep track of how many NARUC meetings there are. Yes, it was the summer meeting. And then I also got to hop up to San Francisco and speak in front of the Young Professionals in Energy, which was great. What a good group of young people. Jigger is, of course, the president of Generate Capital. And uh, Catherine and Jigger were out in California where there was a big news item. The The state finally passed a an extension of cap and trade there after seven attempts a desperate plea from the governor and some pot sweeteners to industry. Legislators in the state passed an extension of cap and trade to 2030. It was set to expire in 2020, and that caused a lot of uncertainty in the market, which caused um, the lack of buying of carbon credits. It's a big deal. California is the world's seventh largest economy, and with Governor Brown vowing to fill in the climate diplomacy vacuum left by Donald Trump, it would have been a huge setback to let cap and trade languish. Catherine, what's the significance here? Were you following this when you were over in California? This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you, and it's damn real. Those are the words of Jerry Brown, the governor of California. And yes, it is really important. Um, it was sausage making at its best. Uh, sometimes people think California is just full of greenies, and maybe that's true to some extent, but it, everything has to go through a pretty crazy process to get to the end of it, and there are a lot of interests involved. And this, So this was the extension of what Schwarzenegger put in place and signed in 2006. That was the foundation for cap-and-trade, and this was the the next iteration of it. And Brown needed to get two thirds of the votes to insulate this bill from a court challenge. So that was where they had to really, really work hard. They weren't going to get 100% of everybody. And they had to cut a bunch of deals. Um, there were a lot of people that were ha- unhappy and on different sides of the aisle. For example, um, EDF and Next Gen Styers Group were both in favor of this bill. The Sierra Club and environmental justice groups were opposed to the bill. So they had to kind of come up with uh, all kinds of different concessions. And in the end, still three Democrats um, voted no in the assembly. Eight Republicans came on. And then in the Senate, all the Democrats voted for it and only one Republican came on. So it was a it was a big deal that they were able to get the folks that they did. Just getting those Republicans to back the bill 
took a lot of um, backroom wrangling and a lot of environmental groups like the Sierra Club and some others were not happy with the final outcome because there were a lot of free allowance giveaways to industry. There were a bunch of tax breaks. Um, you know, they sort of left the agriculture industry alone, which brought on a Republican or two. Um, you know, the Chamber of Commerce finally came on because of these these tax breaks to industry. So some groups were unhappy with the final outcome, but it seems like that's what needed to happen to bring on the handful of Republicans who backed the bill. Interestingly, a lot of people are reading the tea leaves here and saying, what does this mean for Republicans backing some sort of carbon pricing or, or cap and trade bill? And I just don't see how you can apply this to national politics. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the issues were all super local. So it was all really based on what their districts were able to to pull together. Um, I mean, I, I guess in the end, that's what happens in the US Congress, too, is everything is local. So you it's just mag- magnified many, many times over than it is, you know, with with 80 people in an assembly and 40 people in a Senate, it's pretty different than 535. So this was, um, it, they did have to give some concessions for the ag industry and got them and got a Republican on board for that. They had to do um, suspend a fee that um, for property owners for fire prevention that Republicans said adversely impacted rural communities. So they got rid of that. They gave some tax breaks for manufacturing, like you said. Um, But now they have a constitutional amendment requiring a one-time two-thirds vote in 2024 to reset any kind of spending that they do. Um, So that was also significant. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the funds that they bring in. Jager, any comment on the politics of this? No, I think it worked exactly as it was supposed to. Um, I mean, you know, Generate is investing a lot in California. And so we're, you know, doubling or tripling up our investment in California after this bill passes. And so, you know, I look, I think it's a good thing all the way around. I do think that there's a lot of folks who would rather a more prescriptive approach that sort of, you know, sidelines biomass, tells the ag people to stick it, you know, like tells the oil industry to stick it. And, you know, unfortunately, that's just not how you get to two thirds of the legislature voting for stuff, right? And and I just think that people are being a little foolish when they think about um, trying to achieve the perfect, um, you know, outside of being the enemy of the good. You said something interesting there. You're actually increasing investment as a result of the outcome of this bill. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, does this provides a bit more clarity for you or does it provide specific investment opportunities? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, there was a bill passed earlier um, for the dairy industry about mandating that they reduce their carbon emissions by 50%, which is mostly methane. There's also been a lot of work around um, low carbon fuel standard credits um, and other tradable credits in California. But the problem was that all of those credits technically had an uncertain future after 2020. And so you just didn't know whether you could count those you know, wrecks, for lack of a better word, in solar parlance um, beyond 2020. And so now that this has been extended to 2030, it's far more likely that these regulatory instruments will be around long enough to see our investments, you know, uh, hit their total return. The the um, the question of what to do with the money is also quite interesting. And this is something that I do see applying to a potential national conversation if and when we do start talking about carbon pricing. You know, the Republican legislators that got behind this got behind this because they will now have a say in how to spend 
the money. And that seemed to be really important for gathering their support. And I wonder if, if that will be crucial to when we get to the point in national politics where we can start talking about carbon pricing, when we can you know, convince lawmakers that they have a say in what to do with the money. Oh, lawmakers love that. I mean, it just, it's like, <laughs> hey, give me more. Right, perhaps a little bit give obvious. Give me more campaign right, right. contributions. Maybe I'll make, include you for next year's allocation. I mean, they loved, I mean, that's how Maria Cantwell and um, Susan Collins set up their bill back in 2009, 2010, where it was like 75% of the money, I think, uh, went back to folks um, as a cap and dividend and 25% was left by their committee to divvy out every year. But that's how things get done. I mean, that's that's part of the issue with the appropriations process now is there isn't enough ability to make sausage. And you can do it on both sides, certainly. So in this particular bill, there was an aid package for poor communities that are hurt by air pollution disproportionately. It wasn't everything the environmental justice community wanted. In fact, um, local air quality um, standards are preempted by the state in this bill. But at the same time, that gives some money and some resources to those communities to be able to get you know, get cleaner. The, the other thing that... Yeah, that was crucial. The other thing folks wanted to get done, particularly the governor, was this housing crisis in California. I think he wanted to get that accomplished through this bill, too, where they basically preempted local regulations. Um, he got a handshake deal from the Democrats that they would, like, deal with it afterwards, but he didn't get that done. As you know, like, housing is a huge problem in California because, you know, rich liberals in urban centers don't want any dense housing next door to their house. Yeah, there was also a sense of urgency from the governor's office because they wanted to get this bill passed before a budget was passed so they could figure out what to do with some of the money, but they they weren't able to do that. So um, I wonder what this says about California's standing in the world and if um, this story does have more importance after you know Trump has dismantled America's climate policy because Governor Jerry Brown has gone over to China. He's gone around the world and he said, hey, California as the seventh biggest economy is going to be the diplomat where America, the federal government is not. And uh, if California couldn't get this bill passed, regardless of whether it's a good bill or a bad bill, the optics are really important. If California couldn't get this bill passed, then one would see it as a, a major diplomatic blow. Do either of you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I'm, I mean, yes, I, I agree with that. And I also think that California has been an incredible testing ground. They test drive all kinds of policies that put into place technologies that open up markets, create new markets and scale technologies. And then they can track real progress that their state makes. So they've really been a testing ground, not just for technology and startups, which is what you think of with Silicon Valley, but really for policy. And so I think this is important on many levels. Yeah, I think the one thing I think this bill does for me is just that I think that we've been hyper focused on renewable energy, electricity, sort of 100% arguments um, in California. And I think that this really starts to broaden the conversation to bring these really smart policymakers into methane emissions from from animal husbandry, you know, food waste, which is rampant throughout California, um, you know, building emissions, transportation. There's just a lot of carbon emissions throughout California that need to have really smart policy associated with it. And I think we've been spending way too much time just on renewable electricity. Yeah, one thing I I got to see President Picker at um, at the NARUC meetings in San Diego, and I asked him, I said, you know, how is this uh, community choice aggregator? How is that impacting what you all are doing? And it was sort of a different question. It wasn't necessarily about carbon. But what he said was, 
all these guys are buying renewables. And he said, we don't need to buy anymore. We need to figure out our services. We need to figure out how to engage consumers and use what we have better. And I think that's a huge piece of this is how do we create um, the applications and services for all the resources that they already have out there? Well, but on that, right, I mean, they've got all these pilot programs on these services, and then they're like, oh, by the way, full-scale contracts won't be available to 2019. Things they have to work out. <laughs> I mean, it's just really hard as an investor, though, to, like, take a lot of these pilot programs and investing in them seriously when, you know, there's really no date when it becomes a $100 million or $500 million market, right? I mean, it's just, um, but I look, I, I think California made a great choice here to move forward. The other thing, though, about the free money is that when they first passed um, the modified bill um, earlier, people were projecting $12 billion to be in the special fund that came out of the sale of carbon credits. That never materialized. California's carbon credits have been trading at such a low price that the numbers have actually been quite small. So I don't think that there's this huge pot of gold here um, that people are, um, are, are fighting over like they thought they were. Yeah, and um, with all the allowance giveaways, those prices are, are bound to stay fairly low for some time. Uh, but still, there's you know there will be money. There will be some sort of slush fund, if you will, for things like high speed rail, or helping low income rate payers pay their utility bills. Um, there there will be money to go around, and many of the industry groups were pretty happy with the outcome of this bill because whether or not you have the billions that uh, lawmakers and the governor claimed, you're still going to have some some money to to go around for for programs. Did you see that tweet from Elon Musk uh, around um, getting verbal approval for his Hyperloop from New York to D.C.? No, I missed that. So that came out this morning. I, I'm fairly sure that that was strategically timed to try to influence uh, Jerry Brown's um, high-speed rail uh, initiative. He really wants the Hyperloop to be used, even though it's not proven. Yeah, well, uh, they can't get high-speed rail in action I don't know how they're going to get Hyperloop in action. But what's like, what's verbal approval? I mean, like if we haven't learned anything from the Keystone Pipeline, it seems like verbal approval is like worth the same as just buying a membership at Mar-a-Lago and getting Trump to handshake on it. (laughs) Well, to some, whatever Elon says is gospel. We'll see uh, what the governor does here. Before we move on to our second and third topics, we want to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Thanks to Mission for supporting the show. America's booming solar industry now employs over 260,000 people. 260,000 people. That's more than the fossil fuel extraction industries combined in this country. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 260-megawatt solar production facility supports local U.S. manufacturing, engineering, and office jobs right in San Antonio, Texas directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Come on over and meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. That is the solar shindig of the year, and they're going to be at booth 3975. Go say hello and check out their modules. And for those who are not at the event, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. Let's move from the West Coast to the East Coast. Can geothermal heating and cooling follow the path of solar? A new startup that has spun off from Google X 
which moved from California to New York, called Dandelion, thinks so. Dandelion has developed a new drilling technique that it says can slash drilling time by days. And it's also bringing PPAs, product standardization, and software to the mix. It believes that with the right mix of ingredients, residential geothermal heating and cooling can become as ubiquitous as solar in markets where it works. Jigger, you followed the geothermal market. You know this company pretty well. What are they trying to do here? What's interesting and new? Well, what's interesting is that uh, there are many people throughout the United States of America who are not connected to natural gas. And so they are either using electric heat or they're using um, propane or fuel oil to heat their homes. Um, separately, what you find is, is that the geothermal industry normally uses really large drilling rigs that are used by the oil and gas industry or other industries um, instead of purpose purposeful rigs, which could be like one fourth, one third the size, much cheaper and do the job just as effectively with less people. Um, some of these bigger rigs require three or four people to operate where these smaller rigs take one, one and a half folks to, to operate. And so you find that like you can really dramatically reduce the cost of the drilling infrastructure while um, going after these very high um, uh, profitable uh, targets like folks on fuel oil or propane or electric heat. Right. So they're like super wide drills that are designed for drilling a thousand feet. Like they're just way too big for the potential job. Right. So that's what they're attacking first is trying to create this sonic drilling head that basically vibrates the casing downward. And it, it, it in a sense, makes the soil a consistency of liquid. So you can drill perhaps in minutes rather than hours or days. Well, this is how all solar projects are built in the United States, to be clear, right? It's called an ABI machine, and you vibrate steel poles into the ground, basically. And they do like, I think it's like 20 and, uh, you know, I think it's like five a minute or 10 a minute or something. It's really fast. Oh, so it's the same drilling technology? It's not the same one. It's actually a little bit different, but that vibrating part of it's the same. Yeah, when I was at the uh, utility in you know in the late '80s, we were really pushing toward dual fuel, trying to get people off of all electricity. And so the option was, you know, we get an electric heat pump, and then if you have natural gas heating, you know, for your furnace, that that's the way you would go, or you could get this geothermal system. And they trained us on how to deal with it. And it was all these coils. Your yard ended up looking like the golf course in Caddyshack. I mean, it's just really horrible. And we could never really get people to bite on it. But I always thought, you know, in theory, this is the way you want to get the most efficient system in place. I mean, it's not going to work in places. I I went on to Dandelion's website and plugged in my address and they said, nope. Um, But it's in upstate New York. I mean, the places, like you said, where they have fuel oil and propane, that's, that's going to be where it's going to be super cost effective. That's what differentiates them as well. Oh, first, before I I talk about these other differentiating factors. I want to mention that this is a startup with like a couple of projects they just launched. The reason why everyone's talking about them is because they were spun out of Google X and they, you know, they have some unique attributes and they're attacking an, an industry, a sector that people don't really think about that much. So you have the ingredients for a little bit of hype. With that said, they've got some cool differentiating factors if they can pull this off. One is, of course, Jigger's baby, the PPA. You know, they're pulling together no money down financing for these projects. They're developing a standardized product for homes. So only homes with forced air right now. 
and uh, they're trying to basically create a plug-and-play or a, a stamp model. Uh, they've got more sophisticated system monitoring and this modeling system for customer acquisition, which Catherine mentioned, and and they feel like they can better target customers and you know pull them in like a lot of solar companies are doing online. So what in there is most interesting to you, Jigger, in terms of applying this to geothermal? These are things that we recognize very well in solar. Yeah, so the weird thing is, is that I actually think that the targeting is actually more valuable than the drilling because the weird part that I've learned is that the natural gas companies know who are on natural gas and who aren't, but they refuse to share it with anyone. And so it's literally impossible to figure out who's on fuel oil and propane. And the public service agencies, as well as like NYSERDA, has no idea who's on propane or fuel oil. And so they provide these subsidies, but they can't actually help the vendors with what's really important, which is identifying the customers. Um, And so Google, I think, has figured out how to scrape uh, local uh, data from, you know, sort of housing, um, you know, registrations and figure out who's got forced air systems that are on these um, alternative fuels uh, without having to go through these sort of ineffectual public agencies. Yeah. They've, they've got a pretty good team here. Uh, Kathy Hannon is, was a former project manager at Google X for many years. She was evaluating some of the moonshot technologies there. James Quasi, the CTO, uh, was the former director of energy efficiency services at SolarCity. He created the, the efficiency modeling software that was bought up by SolarCity. Of course, SolarCity did have troubles executing its efficiency vision, but James had developed the, the modeling itself that SolarCity acquired. And then Katie Ullman is the VP of marketing, and she was the director of global marketing over at Conergy. So you have folks who've done some interesting things with their careers and have banded together to try to apply some of their um, the lessons they've learned to geothermal heating and cooling. Uh, one shout out I'd want to make is um, I've become pretty good friends with a guy named Roshan Ravankar, who... Um, used to run until recently the International um, Geothermal Ground Source Heat Pump Association, which is where this would be covered. Um, and it's really extraordinary at how um, cons- consolidated and concentrated this uh, industry is. One company out of Europe actually owns something like uh, 70% of the manufacturing uh, capacity in this market. And so uh, it's it's an interesting industry that I think is really at its early days. I would compare it to sort of the solar hot water industry. Well, and it would be really helpful if we can get the investment tax credit for geothermal back in. You know, it was one of those orphan credits that that dropped out, and it would really help them a lot if they got it back into um, into our tax policy. They should partner with the fuel cell folks. Um, do these projects pencil out without the tax credit, Jigger? How how severely does that limit the market without the tax credit? Uh, so I don't think the tax credit's needed for for the commercial market. So there's one group out of Dallas that's doing a ton of work in uh, um, schools for school projects, um, and then there's there's others as well that are quite active. Schools are actually really interesting because the fact that they are sort of off for part of the year is a good thing because it allows the reservoir to sort of rehabilitate itself. Um, so I, I, it's it's been fascinating to learn about the industry, but I am actually much more bullish about the commercial sector in geothermal than I am the residential sector, just because 
these can be really expensive systems. I mean, they can easily be thirty to fifty thousand dollars per home um, right now. Maybe they can get their costs down, but um, and that thirty to fifty thousand dollars system can actually, you know, serve a small commercial load just like it does a residential load. Right. Are there any components aside from the drill itself? Like, um, you know, changing the casing when you're drilling or the heat exchanger, the pump. Are there things where you see you could shave off significant cost? Or is it really like in the customer acquisition side and the straight up drill? Uh, well, it's more about the fact that the, 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 the wells themselves are really a utility resource, right? You can imagine these wells last for a hundred years, right? And so, so the, like if you try to finance it over 10 years or 20 years, you're actually, you know, giving up this huge residual value. And so folks have tried to figure out how to finance the wells separately, like a utility company, and then finance the equipment in the house, the heat pump itself, um, you know, over this sort of 10 to 20 year timeline that, that folks are more accustomed to doing. That's obviously really difficult because you say, well, if I own the well, like who else could I sell it to? And, you know, technically you could sell the capacity there to their neighbor or something else, but it's, it, that part of the industry becomes quite complicated. Yep. They, I know that they are thinking about um, using their system monitoring for potential demand response, using, using heating and cooling for, for demand response. We'll see how this evolves. And I, I, sh- I think we'll probably check in with a broader view of the geothermal market at some point, um, both geothermal heat pumps and um, hydrothermal power plants. And uh, it's a it's a sector we haven't covered a lot because the activity has been pretty moderate. But uh, uh, we'll do another check in sometime. Let's finish up with a check in at Tesla. Eight months after it acquired Solar City, this week brought the departure of Solar City co-founder and chief technology officer Peter Rive. He follows his brother, former CEO Lyndon Rive, who left the company in June. This is part of a wave of departures after Tesla bought up the solar installer. John Wellinghoff left his post as chief policy officer. Tongay Sarah stepped down last fall as chief operating officer um, and Solar City's chief revenue officer, general counsel, and customer experience president all left as well. How should we read into these changes? Jager, how do you read into them? Do you read into them? Well, I think we predicted this, right? I remember the podcast episode that we had when this happened over at Grid Edge last year. And I think I predicted that Lyndon wouldn't last long just because, you know, who wants to work for their cousin after they were the CEO of the company directly. And I think um, the other challenge with um, Solar City broadly was, look, Solar City was a flawed um, marketing model, which is one of the reasons why they had to be purchased by Tesla. Um, and so as soon as they uh, Tesla bought Solar City. They really pared back their marketing spend, so Solar City isn't growing really very much anymore. Even though they're a dominant force in the residential solar space still, and um, and so that's not really an exciting place to be when your company is not really trying to grow. Except it's really more in cost cutting mode. And um, you know, I think when you think about how much money Lyndon and and Peter and others have made. It's sort of time for them to move on and and find like new entrepreneurial ventures to tackle. And so, um, so I don't think it's surprising. I don't think it's negative for the company. I think Solar City is doing what's you know what I believe to be the right thing to do, which is to right size their expenses to be a profitable company. Yeah, I 
I th- also think that the the gestalt of Solar City and Tesla were really really different. Just um, the way that the teams worked together, um, you know, it seemed like Solar City was was much more of like we're all on this team, we're going to do all this team building stuff, and Tesla's much more about put your nose to the grindstone and get the stuff done. Um, but the people I've talked to from Tesla love it. So I, you know, I, I'm sure that the the folks who have gone and moved on to do other things will do other great things. But the people who are there are there by choice. And you just have to listen to the earnings calls to know that this is Musk's show now. He, you know, when they first announced the Solar City acquisition, their intent to acquire the solar installer, Musk started just dominating their conference calls with investors. And, uh, you know, he was the one who randomly mentioned that they were going to develop this solar roof when I don't think Peter or Lyndon were ready to talk about it yet. Um, and then subsequent conference calls, it was it was the Musk show. So it was pretty clear that they were, you know, taking a backseat to Elon's leadership. And I, I've been working my contacts within Solar City to try to get a sense of this. And I don't get the sense that like, you know, these guys were forced out or anything that uh, I agree, Jigger, it was kind of time for them to move on. You know, working for Elon can be very difficult. Um, This is part of a a broader churn within Tesla. And so this seemed like kind of a natural move for Peter and Lyndon. And, And I've seen a number of commenters and folks out on social media imply that this is somehow a sinking ship. And based on my conversations with folks who are, you know, moderately close to this, I don't know that 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 we can say that. No, it's not a sinking ship, but I I do think that there are some cultural issues that Catherine alluded to. But I'll be a little more specific about. For instance, um, Elon doesn't really want you to be at conferences on panels and that kind of stuff. So so being active in that sphere is difficult to do. You definitely have no ability and no. Um, authorization to announce anything at at Tesla Solar City. The only place that things can be announced is on his Twitter feed. Um, so if you want to like shake hands with the governor of some state in Peru and say, hey, you know, we just un- unveiled this thing, you can't do it. Right. And so it really handicaps people not to be able to do photo ops, not be able to do any of these other things. The other thing I would say is that like, the revenues of Solar City are de minimis compared to Tesla, right? I mean, like, you know, Tesla's revenues on a quarterly basis is like $3 billion, and the revenues from Solar City is like $300 million. And so it's just like, it's a rounding error to their shareholders. Yeah, so Bloomberg News has done some great reporting on this, and they've compiled a list of about two dozen departures in the last year, and that includes the VP of Human Resources, the Chief Financial Officer, of course, Mateo Jaramillo, who started the stationary storage business and grew that for Tesla. And it's just clear that there's not enough oxygen in the room for everyone. So you're seeing this churn at Tesla. And um, there are some analysts out there who believe that we've yet to see the, the end of these departures because things are getting super intense within the company as they ramp up Model 3 production. Um, so this is probably the on- only the beginning of the churn. Meanwhile, Tesla does say that it has below average churn when you look at um, the auto industry and other tech companies in Silicon Valley. Let's wrap up. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. And uh, I want to hear from you, Catherine. You got any good stories this week? 
One of the things that I discussed a lot in California, specifically during a breakfast I hosted for an organization with um, President Picker speaking, is the solar eclipse. And on August 21st, um, the moon will completely obscure the sun in certain parts of the country. Um, and you can look, at, you, you can Google it and figure out where all it's going to be. Um, and in California, it's going to cause between five and 6,000 megawatts to drop off the grid. And uh, the CalISO has a whole team working on it. But what Picker is trying to do is make sure that consumers are really aware and that demand response providers are aware so that together we can all they can all work on, you know, preventing when this the moon moves out of the way, all this load coming back on suddenly and causing issues on the grid. They know they can handle it, but it's a great PR move. And um, if you go to caleclipse.org, um, you'll see more about it. And there's going to be a huge political, um, like there's going to be um, a huge consumer campaign around Around this where they're going to have hand out mugs and they're going to hand out glasses to watch it and so it should be really interesting but it'll be fun to see how california handles it yeah michael picker has been talking about this incessantly seeing it as a huge opportunity to build the narrative um jigger what you got so uh, for those uh, of you who've been following this NRG story, um, David Crane published a great piece on GreenBiz um, about sort of his insider thoughts, um, which were all positive. Um, he's got some great quotes in here, though. And, and the one thing I think he said, which I just thought was amazing because it's so true, but no one ever focuses on it, is that. He says, the second sobering lesson is for all of the people who think that they can influence good corporate carbon behavior through institutional investors, a la series, who own publicly traded corporations, there was no institutional investor support for NRG's attempt to go green, and now, obviously, a huge reward for them abandoning the effort. I wanted to mention a quick piece of research that our team put together, which I think highlights a trend that we've discussed on this podcast, the shift from feed-in tariffs to auctions. And we've tracked almost 18 gigawatts of solar PV tenders through auctions around the world. And a lot of that, more than 8 gigawatts, are in Europe, the land of the feed-in tariff. And of course, around the world, uh, more folks are turning to auctions to increase competition and lower prices. And as a result, we've seen record low solar contracts come in. But but I think it's quite notable that Europe, which dominated for a decade and a half in developing feed-in tariffs and largely overpaid for much of the renewables that they supported, has shifted almost entirely to auctions. Well, we'll continue to cover that and all the rest of the trends in the industry on The Energy Gang. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We uh, can be found anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you download your show. Helps a lot to spread the word. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com if you want to send us your show ideas or your comments. And we are looking for an intern to help with some production stuff and some editing. This is a really good opportunity to increase your contacts, to uh, you know get an inside look at how we produce this show and perhaps improve your editing chops. So reach out at podcast at greentechmedia.com if you're interested. Uh, Jigger, enjoy the rest of your week. I will. I love that we're hiring an intern. It's like it's like the intern at Slate's Political Gab Fest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
maybe they can help me with a little bit of research, make me sound smarter. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're in need of a little bit of help here to keep the production groove. So if you're interested, reach out and you'll get to interact with the three of us and, uh, again, get a peek at how we put the show together. Catherine, enjoy your rest of your week and weekend. Thanks, you too. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. 